You know, the other day I uh, was sharing a meal with a friend and we went to a restaurant that I had recommended, uh, a Lebanese restaurant in town, one of my favorites. And he said, Dave, this is such a good place. You are such a foodie. And I thought, that's a new word. Uh, I don't remember when I first heard the word foodie. Uh, it probably, maybe about five or 10 years ago, but it's a, it's a fairly new word in our culture. My grandfather never referred to himself as a foodie uh, and neither did yours, uh, right? This is a, this is a new descriptor of, of a person. And I don't remember when I first heard it, but I, I do remember meeting someone uh, in one day and I said, well, what are you into? And they said, oh, well, I am just such a foodie. I said, well, what, what's a foodie? He said, well, I like food. I like to eat. Uh, I like, uh, you know, I like to know what I'm eating and to learn about it. Uh, I like to cook food. Uh, sometimes I go out to eat. Sometimes I, I stay in and eat. Uh, you, you've, you've just described a human being. That, tells, that, that doesn't tell me anything about you. To be a person is to be, I, I like to eat. and I like, Sometimes I make it myself. Sometimes somebody else makes it. Um, but I can't think of something that, that tells me less about someone. Uh, then simply, I like to eat. In fact, uh, the scriptures tell us uh, that in fact, it's, it's part of who God's made us to be as human beings is that we are people who eat, right? You came into this world eating. If somebody didn't feed you uh, pretty soon, uh, you would not have made it. Uh, one day uh, you will stop eating and then you'll die. But the, the, the rest of your life will be taken up with eating. And furthermore, the scriptures tell us that God defines his relationship with humanity is the God who provides for us, the God who feeds us. You know, uh, in all human cultures, eating is a sign both of our, our deepest social needs as human beings. We share life together around the table and our physical needs. We have to eat to survive. And God steps in as the God who both enters into relationship with us around the table and the God who provides for the needs of every living thing. Right in the very beginning, in, in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden and he fed them. Right? What did he say? He said, look around you. Everything, everything that you see, I give you to name, to figure out what it is, and I give it to you for food. I give it to you to eat. Yeah. So God didn't place them out in a desert somewhere and said, good luck to you, figuring out what to eat. He placed them in a garden with a buffet of things to eat and said, enjoy it, explore it, figure out what's good and how to combine things. But God fed Adam and Eve. He ate with Abraham, right? You remember the, the scene where he comes in the person of two strangers that, uh, that Abraham doesn't recognize and he sits and he shares table fellowship, shares a meal with them, right? He feeds uh, his people when he, before he leads them out of Egypt. Remember where they're in slavery in Egypt and God at the Passover says, here, prepare a meal. Take a spotless lamb and cook it and leave nothing left over. Eat everything but the bones because you've got a journey coming up ahead of you. When he led them out into the wilderness, he fed them every step of the way. The psalmist says that he prepared a table for them in the wilderness. He caused it to miraculously rain bread from heaven to them. At times, birds just fell out of the sky to feed them. At times, Moses struck a rock and water came gushing out that God fed his people in the wilderness, the whole sacrificial system. Remember that we've talked about how the, the Israelites would go to the tabernacle and then the temple day after day, year after year, offering sacrifices. That these were meals that they shared with God. After they would sacrifice it, offering God his portion, they would eat. This was a symbol that God wanted to share life 
with his people. So if you ask uh, the, the, the Bible, what is God like? Well, God is the God who feeds me. God is the God who provides for me. God is the God who wants both fellowship with me at a relational level, and he provides for even my most basic physical needs. Now, all of this is background uh, and backdrop for the story uh, that we read this morning from John chapter 6. Right, Jesus uh, has gone back up to Galilee, and he's up in a, in a part of the country, uh, even today we, is, is often in the news, it's called the Golan Heights. It's a, uh, it's a rocky and mountainous part of the northern part of Israel. And Jesus has attracted to himself quite a crowd uh, there in these hills. And we're told it's Passover. So all of that story, this is the biggest feast in Israel's life. This is the time when they eat and celebrate God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And Jesus there in those hills has been teaching and he's drawn a crowd. We're told it's 5,000 men, uh, which the way that, uh, yes, it's offensive, but at the time, the way they counted a crowd of people was they counted the men. And so we can guess uh, that probably we're talking 10,000 or more people. This is even by contemporary standards, this is a large group of people. This is a group of people that to, to be able to speak to without having a microphone, without having stadium seating, it would have been difficult. We don't know, you know, this is a massive group of people that have come and are milling around trying to hear what Jesus is saying, trying to hear him teach. And John tells us that he's been teaching and it's starting to get to be late in the day. Now, I know that nobody in this room can identify with this. Nobody in my church would uh, say such a thing. But some people have had the experience where you're listening to a pastor preach uh, and he's going a little bit long and you're starting to get hungry, yeah. right? And your, your thoughts start to turn towards where are we gonna go for lunch? How are we gonna eat? What are we gonna do? I don't, again, nobody in this room, but imagine if you can, a long-winded preacher. And, uh, and so uh, here they are. Jesus says it's starting to be late. The people he recognizes are hungry. What are we gonna do to feed these people? You know, notice that here in the midst of this, Jesus with such a large crowd gathered around him. He's thinking for them and he's feeling compassion for them in the midst of their hunger. You notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, listen, what's really important is your spiritual life, right? What's really important are these wise things that I'm saying, let them be hungry, right? If they can't fast for 24 hours and go without a meal, that's, that's their problem. I'm just gonna keep on teaching because I got important stuff to say. No, Jesus in his compassion realizes these, these people are hungry. These people have come out here and they've been out here all day and they don't have anything to eat. John Calvin uh, says that this passage, this uh, miraculous feeding is here because Christ made it plain that he not only bestows spiritual life on the world, but was also commanded by his father to nourish the body, right? Jesus is also concerned with the actual bodies and actual needs of the people of the earth. Another commentator, Matthew Henry, a Puritan, put it this way. He says, the meaning of this sign is to show that the Lord is for the body and to encourage us to pray for our daily bread and to set for us an example of compassion to the poor. Right, if Jesus in his earthly life wasn't above having compassion for the hunger pains of people, so his followers shouldn't think that we're above or on some kind of spiritual plane that doesn't also involve looking into and going after the physical needs of people, their hunger, their thirst, their bodily needs, their needs for clothing and education and safe neighborhoods and all of these things that Jesus is concerned 
with the physical bodies of human beings. And so Jesus, in his compassion, realizes that they're hungry, realizes that they have needs, and then he turns to Philip. He turns to one of his disciples and basically uh, says, Philip, we've got to feed these people. What do we do? You know, it's interesting. Philip was from the, the town of Beth, uh, Bethesda. He, of, of all the disciples, of all of the 12, he was the one who was most local to this neighborhood. He was the one who was most uh, local to this string of villages right on the upper shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus turns to the local and basically says, Philip, what do y'all do for food around here? What's, what's good? If you, had to, if you had to feed a group of people, how would, you, how would you do it? You're from here. You know the restaurants. You know the markets. You know, you know what there is. And Philip looks and he looks at the need and he looks at himself and he looks at these towns that he knows and he says, Jesus, look, look around you. There's, there's, there's 10,000 or more people here. Even if we had the money, which we don't, we couldn't feed these people. He says uh, th- this uh, unit of measure that he gives uh, for the money is roughly the equivalent of, for an average wage, about two-thirds of your annual income. So two-thirds of someone's annual income, he's saying wouldn't be enough just to give these people a little bit, just to, to go to the store and get a loaf of Wonder Bread and some peanut butter, right? We, even, if we, even if we did that, like, we still wouldn't be able to meaningfully feed a crowd of this size. You know, look at Philip. What would you do if Jesus were to ask you, with all of this need around you, all of this hunger around you, what do we do? Philip, like, like I think what most of us do, he looks to his own resources. He looks to what he can understand. He looks at what, they, what he knows. You'd like to think that maybe, think about all that Philip has seen since he started following Jesus. Right? He's seen water turn to wine at a wedding. He's seen uh, a man who had been crippled for 38 years stand up and walk. Right? If you had seen all that, I like to think that maybe you would go, well, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know what we're going to do, but I know that I've never turned water into wine, right? I, I know that I've never, I've never been able to miraculously make something out of nothing. You're the only one that's got that on his resume. <laughs> Jesus, what should we do? Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus, you're the only one who could do anything. But instead, Philip does what most of us do, and he, he looks at himself. He looks at his own abilities, and he despairs. He says, we can't do it. We, we just don't have what it takes to get it done. And how often when we think about our, the needs of our own lives, right? We think about our own needs, whether it's just our very physical needs for a job, for well-being, to be taken care of, to feed those we love, let alone our, our, our deeper needs, our needs and our hunger for significance and meaning and life and identity. How often do we look at the deep hungers of our lives and then we look at ourselves and we go, I don't I don't know how I'm going to get it done. I don't know how I'm going to provide for what I need and for what the people around me need. That much more when you look up from your own life and start to look up, up and out at the world around us, when you start to look at the streets around us, you start to look at a neighborhood like ours and you go, how on earth could we ever think that we can help, right? To make life uh, in, in, in this neighborhood, to make life in this city, any better, to, be, to have people be any better fed, better clothed, better cared for, safer, uh, to, to, to flourish more. 
right? You can look out and just be absolutely overwhelmed by the problems of our city, of our nation, of our world. And we look at our own resources. We look at our own money. We say, I don't have that much. We look at our own gifts. We say, I'm not all that smart. We look at our own uh, abilities. We look at our own best political ideas. We look at all these things and we go, man, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? But then Andrew, I love Andrew's reaction. He has a pretty half-baked plan, uh, even by the disciple standards. He says one of his disciples, unasked, uh, says to him, there's a little boy here who has five little loaves and two little fish, but what are they for so many? Right, so Andrew takes the little boy with the little loaves and the little fish and shows that maybe he has just a little bit of faith. Right, he's got a little bit of faith. Why would he even mention it if he didn't think Jesus could do something with it? But he basically says, hey, look, we've got one kid has some Lunchables. Right, he's got, some, he's got some tiny little flat loaves and, and these aren't big fish. These are basically like the sardines. They would just kind of smear on the fish, bundle it up and eat it. And he says, so Jesus, you did it with, he did it with water. You made it into wine. What, what might you do with this? And over and over in the gospels, we see, uh, and John has been at pains to point out that Jesus does a lot with a little bit of faith. Jesus doesn't wait for perfect faith. He doesn't wait for strong faith. He doesn't wait for Andrew to come and say, hey, Jesus, I, I know exactly what you're gonna do. I've got a plan, I believe. He meets Andrew in the midst of little faith and he takes it and he says, have the people sit down. John gives us uh, this beautiful detail that there was much grass in the place. There's echoes there of Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down and wear green pastures. And so Jesus says, have them, lay down, have them sit, have them sit in the meadow, have them sit there and watch what I'm going to do. And he takes the bread. It says he gives thanks. The Greek there is, is Eucharisto, the word we get Eucharist from. So just as you've seen pastors do, as you've seen me do, he takes the bread, he lifts it up, he gives thanks to God, and then he breaks it and he starts to give it. And he keeps breaking and he keeps giving and he keeps passing until everyone's fed. Uh, and not just everyone's fed. I love the detail that there's actually 12 baskets led, left over, right? Jesus's uh, miraculous feeding isn't just barely enough. They're not, you know, the, the people at the back of the 10,000 person crowd aren't left to go with, oh, I guess we have less. No, he makes it and there's, there's basketfuls left over. Just like when he made, turned water into wine, he didn't just make some, he, he made the yeah. best wine. Right, just as when he, when he told the woman at the well that I offer living water, he said, what, I'll actually, it'll be, the life I give will become a fountain in you that wells up to eternal life. Jesus is always bringing not just life, but abundantly more, abundant and deep life. And so Jesus feeds uh, all of these people. And then the people, uh, being overwhelmed, uh, as you would be, by something like this, they say, I know what's going on here. Hello. This is the prophet. This is the one that we've been waiting for. The, the, the word that they use there, it's, it's rare that someone would identify Jesus uh, in the Gospels as the prophet. Uh, often he's the Christ, the Messiah, but here he says he's the prophet. This is picking up, remember it's Passover, this is picking up on Deuteronomy 18 where Moses told the people, uh, one day a prophet greater than myself will come and he'll lead you, right? And so this is the people looking for another prophet like Moses 
to lead another exodus. Remember, they're living under Roman oppression. This is them thinking, here comes, on the Passover, here comes another leader who's gonna lead us into a new kind of freedom from the Romans. Rabbi Nathan Goldberg is a scholar of uh, first century Judaism. And he tells us this. He says, Passover was the festival of freedom. Coming in the spring month of Nisan, roughly our uh, April, it annually brought relief and hope to suffering folks. There was a saying that in the month of Nisan, the Israelites were freed from Egyptian bondage. And in the month of Nisan, they will be freed again. So he's saying that, that, that at this time, at the Passover time, all the people's thoughts were fixed on thoughts of deliverance. That they, poor and occupied, would be led into a new future, back to being a, an independent nation with their freedom. And so Jesus uh, senses this, that this is about what's happening. He says that they're about to take him and make him, make him king. You know, 10,000 people in the middle of a wilderness with a king isn't a congregation, it's an army. It's a, it's a group of people that, that would be a threat to the Jerusalem powers, to, to Caesar even. Right? Not to mention in those days, one of the biggest threats to an army uh, was actually not raising up the army. It wasn't getting all the, the, the weapons you needed. It was feeding the army, right? Rome was able to conquer uh, the known world because they could not only expand their powerful army, but then they could get supply chains to them. They could feed them. And so here they go, we got a king who can feed us easily like this. Let's go, let's go. And so Jesus senses this and he leaves. He removes himself and he goes away by himself to a mountain. All throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has this sense of timing, the sense that he knows what's going on. Remember, it says he already knew what he was gonna do in feeding the 5,000 before he even asked the disciples. Now here he said, it's him knowing that on this side of the cross, he doesn't get made king, that the cross has to come before the throne uh, in, his, in his ministry. I love that Jesus, and I think it's insightful, that Jesus has compassion on their needs, he doesn't despise the bodily needs of everyday people. So he meets their physical needs. But when it comes time for them to make him king, he recognizes that this world needs more than just a reshuffling of the physical world. It needs more than just a reshuffling of the political powers. That this world needs a deeper healing than just a better leader. And so he says no. And he goes away and he, because the change that he's gonna bring the kingdom and the kingship that he's gonna bring is gonna be much deeper than anything these people could have imagined. And so Jesus goes, uh, we're, this is a, chap, John chapter six is actually the longest chapter uh, in the New Testament. And so we're gonna be skimming over some of this, of this journey, but Jesus uh, goes and he leaves. Uh, he goes to another town across the lake. His disciples go on a boat. Jesus walks on the water. Uh, and then the, the crowd finds him. The crowd comes and, he, and they find them here. And Jesus says to the crowd in verse 25, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Remember in John, the miracles are always signs, right? The point is never simply the, the display of power. The point is always that people would see what Jesus did 
And look past the sign to what it signified. Look past the sign to what it told them about who Jesus is. And so Jesus meets their physical need in an effort to point them beyond simply that physical need to their deeper spiritual hunger, the deeper need that they had for spiritual life, real life. And the crowd has completely missed it. And so Jesus says, look, don't wear yourself out chasing after bread that fills you up for a moment and then you're hungry again. Take from me the the real food, food that will satisfy you to the soul level, that will feed you in such a way that you'll never hunger again. And I love uh, the people's response to this is just so what I think any of us uh, conditioned by this world would say. They ask him, they say, what are the works that we must be doing What work must we do to be doing the works of God? You can identify with them. Here's what they're saying. Listen, in this life, if you don't work, you don't eat. Every every bit of food that I've ever eaten, I've, I've gotten because I've gone out and I've worked hard and I've made the money and I've gotten the food. So what works do I have to do in order to earn this kind of bread, this kind of real spiritual life giving bread? Because if if my earthly boss requires me to work hard for regular ordinary bread, What must God require of me to give me this real life bread, to give me this everlasting bread? Right, we can identify with that. That if we want real life with God, if we want his forgiveness, if we want his acceptance, if we project onto him what we know from this life, the only question we can ask is, what do I have to do, God? How, much, how many good things do I have to do? How many old ladies do I have to help across the street? Right? How many uh, wonderful acts, how kind, how loving, how forgiving, how sacrificial and self-disciplined, how wonderful do I have to be to God so that God will in turn give me what I most need? And so Jesus uh, replies to them. Jesus answered them, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He goes on to, he's basically saying, look, the only thing that you have to do to receive this kind of everlasting life, living bread, is believe. He then goes on to say, you can't even believe for yourself, right? That God the Father, I will lose none that the Father gives to me. So even the one thing that you're asked to do, you can't do, and God does it for you, right? This is absolutely uh, mind-blowing grace for his audience. That the thing that you most need, you could never get, and so God has given it to you. And the only thing that's required is that you receive it by faith that he gives you. Faith is simply receiving the loving kindness of God for you in Christ, It's not just believing that God is loving or that God is kind in some kind of general sense, but believing that he loves you, that he gives himself to you, that he offers himself to you. That this is the living bread. The last passage that we read is where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? The, the image of eating bread, taking bread into yourself, you do nothing. You just are passively receiving it. Your body, nobody has ever bragged saying, hey, you know what I can do that's really amazing? I can turn bread into energy to, to live on. No, you, you, don't, you just receive. 
You just receive, you receive life. You take it into yourself. It's a symbol of our receiving Christ by faith. Some of them grumbled against him, we're told in verse 41. Grumbled is a loaded word. It's the same word, again, that the Israelites used when they grumbled against Moses. When they complained against him, they complained against Moses too for the bread that he gave them. When it rained manna down on them, eventually the people got tired of eating manna. And they said, ah, maybe we should go back to Egypt where we we were slaves, but we still got better food. The people grumble. They can't bring themselves to, to wrap their hearts around this incredible grace, this free gift. And so some of them begin to leave. Jesus then, uh, if, if it's already been a little bit strange, a man talking about himself is living bread. In, verse, in the 50s here, in verse 52 and beyond, uh, it starts to get from a little bit strange to downright weird. Uh, Jesus says to them, for my flesh, in verse 55, is true food, and my blood is, t- is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Whoa. So this, on, on our ears, we're used to every week, uh, we hear uh, talk of, G- of the bread being Jesus' body, the, the blood, uh, the wine being his blood. But imagine how strange this would have been if you were a first-time hearer and a guy that you've just been following and starting to listen, listen to a little bit, you like what he has to say about real and abundant life, all that stuff. If he starts saying, here's how you're gonna get the abundant life. Uh, First, you're gonna eat my flesh. And then after that, you're gonna drink my blood. And if you do that, then you have abundant life in me. Imagine how strange those words would have sounded on your ears. Imagine how bizarre that would have felt to you when you first hear it. I love, uh, in verse 60, we get exactly what they thought. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And many of them got up and left, right? It was, this was a bridge too far for many of his would-be followers to go to with him eat his flesh, drink his blood, I'm out. I, this is the part where I leave. And so Jesus uh, then turns to the 12. As the crowd slowly leaves, he turns to the 12 and he says, are you two now going to leave? Right, you can almost hear the sadness in his voice. He's talking about his coming death. He's talking about the coming breaking of his body shedding of his blood, people are leaving, and he turns to his closest friends, the 12, and says, guys, y'all, are you also now gonna leave me? And then Simon Peter says, in, in, in one of my favorite confessions of faith, do you wanna go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Yes, this is hard. Yes, these are hard sayings. But Jesus, where else can we go? We've tasted the, the living bread that you offer. We've experienced this living bread that satisfies in a way that nothing else in this world can. Now that we've tasted it, now that we've taken it into ourselves, now that we've tasted the beginnings of eternal life with you, Where else can we go? 
There is no one else, there is no place else that offers this kind of deep and lasting and abundant life. Where else can we go? You know, sometimes uh, this is what faith is. It's not a heroic, yes, I'm 100% certain. It's not a, a brave, yes, I have courageous and bold faith. Sometimes it's simply a confession that, you know what? Jesus, there is no place else I can go. There is no other bread. There is no other place that satisfies, and I've tried. You are the only place that I've got left. Have you learned this yet? You know, some of us have to learn this the hard way. Some of us have learned this the hard way, going to place after place after place, trying to fill up our hunger. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, English writer, uh, put it this way. He said, every man who's knocked on the door of a brothel was looking for God. Right? Every, every, every guy that ever went to a brothel, to a, to a place of prostitution, was looking for God. He was chasing after a filling of his hunger. He was chasing after a type of intimacy and transcendence that he could never, ever get there. Our hungers always lead us. They always drive us. Have you learned yet that the other sources, the other places that we take our hunger cannot satisfy? And we truly have nowhere else to go, right? Even in the hard moments, even in the hard say, Right, even in those places where Jesus confounds us, in those places where he asks us to, to face sins in our lives that are lingering, addictions that are fierce and that have us in their grip, and he calls us to walk through them and pass them, even in that hard saying, we've got nowhere else to go. When we're in the midst of difficult and broken relationships, when our marriages are hard, when it would be so much easier in the moment, it seems, to leave, to turn to Jesus who asks us to walk through them, and to forgive, and to love, and to reconcile, and to say, truly, there is no place else to go. In the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our unbelief, when it seems like at times the only thing we can think to do is discard the entire faith, even in the midst of that place, when Jesus calls us to faithfulness, to say, Jesus, there is no place else to go. There is no other bread. There is no other life. Do you have the courage to pray with Samuel Rutherford 17th century pastor prayed. He prayed, Lord, spoil my fool's heaven here below that I might be prepared for everlasting heaven with you. Spoil for me all of those little places that I go thinking they'll give me life and create a heart that will only ever be satisfied by you, Lord Jesus. You know, there was a, a, a video that went viral uh, not too long ago. It was, it was by a, a Danish television show. I don't watch Danish television regularly, uh, but, I, but I came upon this. And it was, it was one of these prank shows where they pull a prank on people, video it, make people look foolish. And their prank was they went to a foodie convention, a convention of people who given their entire life to being foodies and to pursuing organic and sustainable food, railing against the evils of fast food. And so what they did was to present their new product, they took up... Uh, food that they had ordered earlier that day at McDonald's. And they cut it up and they presented it nicely. And then they brought out, served on nice trays to these very, very sophisticated people. Uh, chicken nuggets and Big Macs uh, cut up and put on toothpicks and they offered it to these people. 
And so then you've got on video, these Danish foodies uh, saying things like, oh, the flavor is just so pure. It's so delicious. It's unlike anything I've ever had. You can taste that this chicken must have come from a nearby farm, right? This, uh, this meat is, the flavors are just so concentrated. One guy says, if this was a wine, it would be the finest wine. The way that it just releases flavors on your tongue. It's amazing. And so in this video, right, the reason you love to laugh at it uh, is because we love to see people uh, exposed <laughs> in the midst of their pretension, in the midst of their posing, right? We like that. But Jesus, uh, had, I think the, what he's driving at here is that he's trying to create in his people, people who can taste the difference. Uh, people who are true foodies, not foodies simply for uh, the, the physical food that we eat, but people who having once tasted real food, real living bread, are never satisfied again by other things, who are never satisfied by the cheap substitutes that this life offers, right? We may enjoy success when it comes. We may enjoy friendship when it comes. We may enjoy romance when it comes, but we're never fooled into believing that it's the real thing. We're never fooled into believing that it can satisfy the deepest hunger of our souls. Instead, we're the people that say to Jesus, Jesus, I've tasted everything else and I have nowhere else to go. Only you offer living bread.